0: We want to walk people through some of the conversations you and I have had.
1: Well, I remember one right now. What? A lot of people up there called you the new Kelly Johnson. We have to get that in there. I'll bet you haven't forgot that.
0: No, I, I haven't, and I'm, I'm very flattered by that, that you would even think that since you actually knew Kelly. And hopefully they just edit that out and don't use it. <laughs> yeah, I hope they do use it.
2: You may recognize Steve Justice, retired Skunkworks director of Advanced Development Programs. Earlier this year in February, Steve met up with his friend Bob Gilliland. Every time they got together, Bob would tell stories about his time as a pilot in such a cool, casual way as though everyone must understand what it's like to fly in an SR-71 for the first time.
0: Of course, you know, when I told my wife about it, it was like, okay, we'll, we'll always leap at the chance to go out and visit with Bob and his son, Robert. And, of course, Bob comes fully prepared. He has his flight suit with him and a bunch of memorabilia, uh, a number of books that had the airplanes that he flew in it. It was so good to see him again. And, you know, I'm sitting across from this guy that had more flight test time above Mach 2 and Mach 3 than anybody else. That's the only pilot to have flown every version of the Blackbird, to have worked with all of these just icons in the industry and was just as down to earth as you could possibly get. What an honor it was to be able to spend time with someone that lived what I only get to read about. I'll carry that always.
2: On July 4th, 2019, Bob passed away at the age of 93. We are honored to share the stories we captured that day back in February.
0: People need to understand where you came from.
1: Well, I was from Memphis, Tennessee, and my main interest there was not getting the Mississippi River and me in trouble. But then I went away when I was 14 to Webb School near Nashville. And my dad had even gone there. He wanted us to get a good education, and he knew that's where I could get it.
0: So what year did you graduate?
1: 1944, when World War II was still on. And I wound up at the Naval Academy.
0: So what did you do when you got out of the Naval Academy? Well,
1: let me tell you, I graduated, but not into the Navy. I elected to go into the U.S. Air Force because they said that they would put us right into flying. And so I got sent in to San Antonio, Texas. That's where I first soloed.
0: So did you always want to fly?
1: I think I thought I'd like it.
0: So you go into the Air Force and uh, do you immediately go into pilot training?
1: Yes. After I'd finished up in San Antonio, then I went over to Arizona. But they had a rule over there that if you're over uh, six feet tall or over 180, you had to go uh, to big bombers. And uh, I was over on both counts. Another guy from the Naval Academy, but he he was a short guy, he was ordered to go there Uh, to San Antonio, but he gets to fly fighters now. Saturday night I knocked on the door of the commanding officer. He was having a bunch of people there that probably he didn't even know because he shook hands and said, come on in. (laughs) And I said, well, sir, I'm here on an important thing. If you'd give me two minutes of your time. And he said, what's all this about? He knew I, I was from the Naval Academy when I told him. And I have this other guy from the Naval Academy. And I told him that he wants to go into bombers, and we would like to reverse it if you can. He said, come to see me at at 8 o'clock Monday. So I did. I got 50 copies of this new change of assignments, and that did the job.
2: Bob was an experienced pilot and flew virtually every aircraft in the Air Force's inventory. He encountered many close calls and challenges during flight and was known for successfully navigating them.
1: One time I got up, I pulled up and went way said like and then stalled out and I had to get it out of the spin.
0: Oh, they went to a spin and I... Yeah. Return. Yeah, okay.
1: <laughs> I wasn't planning on all of that.
0: So, you're in the Air Force. Did you move to operational airplanes at That's that point?
1: That's right, and I put in for, I and Jimmy Hardinger, and we were big buddies in flight school, and he, he had put in for first in Feldberg, which is northwest of Munich, Germany. The other base was on the south side of Munich, Germany. So, I got assigned to one, he got assigned to the other.
0: So, what did you fly in Germany?
1: I flew the P-47 a tail wheel with four-bladed prop.
0: What year was this?
1: I, we got there in uh, June of 1950.
0: So about five years after the war. At yeah. That point. So you're flying P-47s, and do you finally get oh, jets?
1: Oh, oh, right away. We were, in fact, I made a comment. I said, what's this hunk of junk talking about that? Because I'd already flown jets. By the way, I went to the Pentagon, and I went into this guy's office, and the lady tried to prevent me to go to the Pentagon where I'd never been before, and so uh, I talked to him and I said, I'd like to uh, see if you could get me to be based, Gulf of Mexico, south of the Pentagon. And so I got assigned there. to it was close to Memphis, I did get a chance to go back and forth to Memphis a little bit.
0: Visit family? Yeah. After you finished flying down on the Gulf, you moved up to Knoxville?
1: My dad, he called me up when I was down there on the Gulf of Mexico, says, uh, I'd like you to come up here and you can join the International Guard and help me in my work. And so I I took him up on this and called the guard and I said, hell yeah, we'd like to have you in the Memphis Guard. So I was in the guard in Memphis. I got in the guard in Knoxville. And when I got in the guard in Knoxville, I flew this airplane here.
2: Steve mentioned how Bob came to this interview equipped with his books and memorabilia. Bob was pointing to a photo of the F-104 starfighter.
0: So this is where you flew the 104 for the first time?
2: Yeah,
1: and that's the one that let me get hired by Lockheed.
0: Was the 104 an exciting airplane to fly?
1: Very much so. It was terrific. It was faster than any of the other airplanes.
0: How fast did you go in an F-104?
1: This thing will go Mach 2.
0: Did you ever go Mach 2?
1: Constantly. And so it's because of that thing that I got in with Kelly Johnson. He designed it.
0: So, tell people what it's like to fly an F 104.
1: Well, w- one thing about it, you got a nose wheel and tires, and, and you got an afterburner. And so, if you put on the afterburner and you don't let the thing roll ahead, it can blow a tire.
0: So, you had to be very careful about using brakes.
1: Yeah, you say exactly. You, listen, you go burner, and you better be, have everything all free to, to accelerate.
2: Lou Shock was the chief test pilot of Skunk Works at the time, and he recruited Bob to join Lockheed. And we
1: were in downtown uh, Burbank, and he says, how would you like to come over here with me? And so I said, okay, tell me about it. He says, I can't. I said, "How how do I know I would like coming over there with you? He says, you don't. So that was the conversation we had. It was a beautiful day while we were driving.
0: Why did you decide to take him up if you couldn't know about it?
1: I guess I knew that they were, they were doing something secret and good. So that's why I assumed that would be the case. So when Kelly Johnson called me over to his office, he knew I was flying this.
2: Once again, that tap is Bob pointing to a picture of the F-104.
1: So he said, I got something It flies higher than this, flies further than this, uh, and so then he stands up, and it was just me and him in his office, and he said, now let's go ahead and take a look at it. And so that was the secret one that was, hadn't flown yet.
0: This was the A-12 ox cart, the CIA? Yes, it's
1: only fighter pilots could fly that.
0: So Kelly walks you over to this hangar. Yeah, and you,
1: you, and I you could walk tell in high and fast and heavy.
0: What did, what did you see when you walked through the door?
1: Nothing, it didn't have any black stuff on it. It was uh, 94% titanium. That's what I could see on the first time I looked at it.
0: So was it still being built when you saw it?
1: Yeah, this thing was under construction. Oh, and then after that, uh, since it wasn't ready, Kelly told me to come on over in two weeks. And I said, well, Levere wants me to go over to Europe again and uh, fly for the Germans and the Italians. And so then Kelly says, well, we don't have anything ready to fly yet and it'll be a while, so you might as well go over there again and do that. So I did and I went briefly to Germany and then I went to Italy. And so I finished up with those guys. I got back on a Sunday and I met with Kelly. We would always meet at seven o'clock on Mondays, and the very next day, I got a subsonic flight in the secret area.
0: So the very first flight in a Blackbird you did was for with one of these CIA A-12s.
2: Yeah. Lou Shock, who recruited Bob, was the first pilot to fly the A-12 Oxcart, a single-seat aircraft operated by the CIA and the precursor to the SR-71. Bob became one of the A-12 test pilots.
0: So you fly the, the, the A-12 the first time. Was it still kind of in its natural metal color or had it been painted black yet?
1: Oh, no. They, they had didn't anything on that thing painted black yet. That All silver. Later. One thing I forgot to mention, that we had a different engine at first, too.
0: Yeah, you actually had the Pratt & Whitney J-75s yeah, inside
1: that thing. exactly. And so when you'd get the... Then you accelerate on out and climb, and then that's when we'd blow engines all the time. In the beginning, we, we would blow very frequently before we moved out of the G75, it'd be better to go beyond the 3.2 mark.
0: When you say blow an engine, what? The engine wouldn't blow up.
1: It wouldn't, it wouldn't destroy the engine. They could go back and fix it, but it would blow up as far as you're concerned.
2: Bob is describing an engine unstart, where the compressor of a supersonic aircraft's engine suddenly stalls. Steve describes what a pilot would experience during an unstart.
0: One engine stops. At that point, as I remember, the Blackbird has, when it's at cruise, has around 15,000 pounds of drag on it, basic drag. And when you get an inlet unstart, it's about 7,000 pounds of drag that shows up on one side of the airplane extra all of a sudden. So the drag goes up by 50% on one side of the airplane, causing the airplane to yaw violently to one side. The airplane would hit the pilot in the helmet on the side that the engine was still good. That's how he knew which engine was good. When the inlet would unstart and you would try to restart it.
1: Generally, they wouldn't restart it once you slowed down.
0: It would restart. Do you, do you have any idea how many unstarts you experienced? No, I don't. A bunch?
1: Yeah, it's part of the
0: Every flight? Part of the
1: program. Yeah, I think, yeah it was pretty much unstart re- on, on every flight.
2: All experimental aircraft require incremental test flights to slowly expand the operational capability of the aircraft. Every test pilot uses test cards to make sure they hit every test point. Bob flew A-12 speedruns which required he fly up toward Canada and down the Pacific coastline. The A-12 could reach speeds as high as Mach 3.2. At this speed, the turn radius is the size of a western state.
1: We would take off and go north. And so if everything's going good, we'd just bank it up to 30 degree angle and start swinging it up so you wouldn't enter Canada. That was a no-no. Everything went really good.
3: Although it would have been tempting for my father to see if he could just go a little faster.
2: This is Robert Gilliland, Bob Gilliland's son. You'll hear more from Robert throughout this episode.
3: He stayed exactly within the flight profile and obviously that would be confirmed by the instrumentation that's on the plane. And I think that that, uh, I think that's a a trait that Kelly liked that if he set a profile on a a flight that he wanted it followed to the T. He didn't want any deviations. Uh, It was too much at risk. That is the the, the discipline that would be necessary, you know, to, to be a successful test pilot as well.
1: I remember when I was way high, and I flamed out, then I would try one engine and look, and it would light, then I'd bring it back, then I'd try the other engine. And then I kept going down, and then pretty soon I'm going both engines, but couldn't get a light out of any of them. In the past, you have a deal like that, you light it up and everything's normal again.
0: Were you going supersonic?
1: Oh, good God, yes. I wouldn't be up that high if I were
0: Who was the chase pilot in the 104? that was following
3: Oh there was
1: Bill glow. Yeah.
3: And he was on his tail and he's as he's losing altitude dad kept trying to get it relit relit and he couldn't get it relit and he was on the uh, talking to the tower and he said so, I said uh, this looks
1: throttled. bad. Yeah. And I knew they had 30 knots on the ground too. Right.
3: And so as he's the nose is coming down and, and uh, is going right down with him and dad every time he tried to get a relight you know hit the throttle and then you know it would flame out. And finally, uh, he got one of the engines lit, and just enough to get some power going. And Bill Squire, Sclyer-
1: he was up under me, and he says, It looks like it's lit now. And so then I thought, If I move my stick, it'll flame out again. So I went not did a, a landing out of that deal where I was afraid to move the th- throttle. And so I landed downwind, which was already a high wind. And so then I touched down, and then I thought, I better pick it up like this and slow down a little bit. And I did, but anyway, I got back okay. That was a very close call, because Sklar helped me a lot.
0: Is that the closest you've had to come to ejecting from an airplane?
1: Uh, I would say, I can't remember having one closer.
0: Dad,
3: uh, when he was doing the 104 flight tests, he had five dead stick landings in an F-104, and that was another reason that Kelly selected Dad for the SR-71 program as well, because he, yeah. he brought him back. Yeah, I, I had five
1: him. dead stick landings in this thing, where the engine quit and you can't get a restart, and you decide to land instead of eject. But it had been a lot safer ejecting on these things.
0: Why did you make the decision to try to land?
1: Because I was flying the damn thing at first, Seven days a week, and on the weekend, I could practice them up. And as I got better at it, I had more confidence in it.
0: So you felt better trying to land it? Yeah,
1: I did it, too. Five of them. I I don't know of anybody that did that many.
2: Kelly quickly heard about Bob's successful dead stick landings from Tony LeVere and wanted him to be a test pilot for the SR-71 program.
0: You're one of the few people around that actually worked with Kelly closely and, and knew Kelly. What was Kelly like?
2: For one
1: thing, he's paranoid on security.
0: He was, he was security was very important to him. Yeah. What was he like as a person? Was he smart?
1: Oh, yeah. When he was 27 years old, that's when he designed that other airplane during World War II. They went from Burma to Berlin, right. more than anywhere in the world. He was only 27 when he did that one.
0: Kelly picked you to be the test pilot for the SR-71, right?
1: Yes. The first flight on that was December 22, 64. Naturally, I would have hoped it would be me.
0: Because your job as a test pilot, you you took risks.
1: Sure. Were you it's ever part of afra- the job?
0: Were you ever afraid to fly?
1: No, Never.
3: I've asked him before. Uh, you know, uh, what's the difference between a test pilot? and a regular pilot. And he said, well, the difference is that, you know, most pilots, uh, they don't uh, incur emergencies, you know, on a consistent basis. Test pilots have to make life or death decisions constantly. You know, one of the things about the SR-71 program that my father did not know on the first flight that it was a milestone program. That is, the Department of Defense was going to pay Lockheed a bonus if they could get the first flight of the Blackbird, the SR-71, before January 1 of that upcoming year. I know it was about a month or so before the first flight, Kelly Johnson came up to my father and asked him, "Uh, how do you feel about going wheels up on the first flight? One thing my father was very good at was that he'd always want to talk to the engineers, the different engineers that were involved in different aspects of the airplane's design and development so that he could get a full understanding of what the airplane could and couldn't do and understanding all the mechanisms and the workings of the aircraft. But he felt very confident in the ejection system. So he told Kelly, I'm fine either way. And in this case, the SR-71, if the the airplane's landing gear did not retract uh, as needed, then the pilot would have to eject. There's no bellying in this airplane. And then you you lose your prototype aircraft. You've lost millions of dollars and you've set the program back years. So when dad said, sure, I'm fine with it, uh, Kelly said, well, hmm, let me think about it and let me get back to you. And about a week or so before the first flight, he said, we're gonna go wheels up. By going wheels up, Lockheed would get another bonus. And if they went supersonic on the first flight, they'd get another bonus. And so, before the first flight, they have a card, and Kelly set forth the parameters of what the flight would entail and what would be accomplished on the first flight.
1: So Kelly came up in his two-engine star. And then in this case, we had three chase pilots. So I taxied out and parked and got in position. Then we all rolled down the runway at the same time and took off and went up to about 25,000 feet.
2: Bob flew north up over Mammoth Lakes, California.
1: So I got over the mountains because even, even then it drops the sonic boom. And so I went burner. Every time you go burner in this airplane, One will hit, the other one won't. So you go like that. And then when you both got them, then you accelerate. So when I got to around 1.8 mark, that's when I got a problem.
2: A red light flashed on the instrument panel indicating the canopy was unsafe. So Bob pulled back the throttles and analyzed the problem. He turned to his right and left to determine if the canopy was secured properly. He determined that the air over the canopy was causing it to lift just slightly, and a micro-switch triggered as if the canopy was raised during flight. He determined the switch was giving a false reading and that the canopy was indeed safe. He accelerated and ignored the flashing red light.
1: So I came back and reduced the minimum burner, and it slowed down from uh, 1.8 down to 0.04. And so I looked to see what the hell was causing that. Then I went burner again. On this thing, I thought, well, this is the first flight, and I think they've screwed up maybe the way they put their gauges. So I ignored it and then went all the way out to 1.5.
2: Robert told us that Bob later commented that if the canopy had in fact blown off, the engineers on the ground would have been very upset asking him, why do you think we put the big red light in front of your face?
1: and there was no problem. When I came back, reduced power. Then Kelly says, how's your fuel? And I said, fuel's fine, sir. He said, well, how about a flyby? And he had a bunch of people on top of the buildings. So we just did a nice flyby. Then Kelly says, how's your fuel now? Says, fuel's still good, sir. Said, how about another flyby? So did another flyby like this. He had a a couple of generals there and they wanted one more flyby. So we did that, but then we had a malfunction and we started leaking fuel. It was was leaking out uh, big time. So I came around and landed in a hurry, real happy that everything had gone good
3: when he did the last flyby with the SR-71 in front of Kelly as requested with the generals and started dumping fuel, there was a white stream that was coming out of the tail. And one of the generals uh, nudged Kelly and said, what's that? And uh, Kelly had to, you know, embarrassment say, "Uh, it's just a minor little uh, problem. But he had later told dad, he goes, I wish I hadn't asked you to make that last. (laughs) It was a little embarrassing with the general nudging me like that.
2: Robert, along with his mother and sister, was actually present for the first flight as well.
3: Uh, My mother got a phone call um, for one of her friends who was married to one of the uh, employees at Lockheed in the Skunk Works uh, to inform her that the flight was uh, going off today. And my mom knew at the time that, of course, my dad was a test pilot and worked for Lockheed. And she also knew that he was flying something very super secret that he wouldn't talk about. And my dad had uh, told her that he was flying something that he couldn't discuss, but that it would be going off very, very soon. And so my dad in advance had previously uh, told my mom that uh, if uh, she's able to come out and watch the first flight, this is where I want you to park. And so on that morning, my mom got the call and she drove over quickly to uh, where the, the flight was to take place in Palmdale, parked where my dad had indicated, and I was there and my sister, my older sister, Anne, um, so I was just a little guy at the time. I was two years old, my sister was four years old. He rolled out to the end of the runway. He then uh, released the brakes and then uh, went, went down the runway. And as he came overhead, uh, my mom recounted to me that my sister and I immediately were uh, just terrified by the loud engines. I think we were both probably in tears at that time. And uh, he came, you know, screaming overhead. And uh, my mom was there and she said the tears were rolling down her face willing, you know, the plane off the ground, so to speak. Dad disappeared off into the the horizon.
2: Bob received a signed photo from Kelly for successfully completing the first flight.
1: He put uh, in the lower right-hand corner uh, to Bob Gilliland, thanks for fine first flight. And then he sounded. I showed that to Tony Levere. He says, hell, I made several, a bunch of first flights for Kelly Johnson. He never wrote anything like that for me.
3: (laughs) At one point, we lived in La Cunada, Flintridge, which is uh, down the hill over from, you have to go over the Angeles Crest Highway. It's about a 45-minute drive, and then you drop into Palmdale, where Dad would have to have those 7 a.m. meetings bright and early. And so he had this uh, Mustang, and it was very, you know, it was a new Mustang, very fast, and he'd go zipping around over the hill and down into Palmdale to make sure he wasn't late for Kelly because he said, whatever you did, you didn't want to be late for a Kelly Johnson meeting, that's for sure. But I remember one day I was uh, uh, sitting in his car, and I opened, I was in the passenger seat, and I punched the glove box open, and all these yellow tickets came flying out. (laughs) And I, I realized at that point that when you fly... Mach 3.2, and the world's highest and fastest airplane, it takes a little getting used to to go slow again when you're
0: in your car. How did the name Dutch 51 come to be?
1: That was from the Pentagon. They told you what your code number would be.
3: Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, each of the pilots all got, you know, they're all, all their call signs were Dutch and then it was either 5-1, 3 whatever. The irony I think is funny is that how dad's call sign was Dutch 5-1 and he flew out of Area 51. He got a lot of questions asked about was that intentional, but I think it was really random that he just ended up with Dutch 5-1.
0: What did it feel like to be able to talk to people about the blackbird for the first time out in public? Do you, do you remember doing that?
1: I, I would be careful who, who I, I knew I was used to doing things that were secret, keep it secret as far as I was concerned.
3: tend to appreciate the accomplishments of your parents. I knew he flew this black airplane that was really fast, and, uh, and I just thought it was normal. And you know, I didn't think that it was, and, I, and all the friends that would come over to our house when I was a kid were astronauts and test pilots. So it seemed very normal to me that, you know, this is just his job, and this is what he does, and there wasn't anything super amazing about it. Although, I do remember one occasion when I was at one of my friends' homes, uh, I was somehow I got on the subject of my father talking about what he flies. He flies this black airplane that goes so fast he can you know, fly faster than a 30 six bullet. And uh, I remember the parent kind of looking at me like smiling you know with this kind of look like, oh, what a creative imagination he, he must have. But I, just growing up uh, in the, the, this sh- kind of shadowy world, it was very different, very you know interesting. And as I got older, I got to appreciate it more. Although he did all these amazing things, you know, flying the world's highest and fastest airplane, nobody knew about it because it was top secret. It was not to be spoken, you know, not to be uh, discussed. And so he really didn't obtain fame uh, and recognition for what he has done until much later in his life. It's very kind of uh, strange in, in the way that uh, he's my father, and yet I see this American aviation icon. But I look at him as he's just my dad. He's my father that was, uh, I think, in the right place at the right time, who happened to have all the skills necessary to, to accomplish the job.
0: Is there an airplane that you didn't get to fly that you would like to have flown?
1: Well, I'm sure in earlier days, I would have taken up a bunch of them if I could have.
0: What kind of airplanes did you want to fly? Fighters?
1: Yeah, the fighters and the world's best.
0: The world's best.
1: Yeah. And they, yeah, we don't see anybody else at 85,000 feet. There was nothing comparable. And uh, when it would go 3.2, that's the maximum speed of the airplane. And when you're going that fast, you you're at 85,000 feet going big time.
0: What was the view looking out the windows of the Blackbird? I know you didn't look out much.
1: Well, I was old enthralled with flying the airplane. you know, I like doing that. I was doing what I wanted to do. After all, that's why I left Tennessee and went all the way over to Laquita in the first place.
0: Let me ask you this. You and I have talked about this before, but you're forever tied to history. When you reflect on being the first person to fly the Blackbird and know that forever, your name is gonna be tied to that, what goes to your head? Are you, are you humbled by it?
1: I'm grateful that I was in a position to do that. I still am.
0: Very proud of that.
1: I just think I'm lucky to have done it and I would have done it the same way if I had it to do over.
2: Inside Skunkworks is produced in Palmdale, California in Fort Worth, Texas. We want to extend a thank you to Bob's son, Robert Gilliland, and his family for making this episode possible. For a full transcription of this episode, visit LockheedMartin.com slash